Okay, good morning. So we're in uh, chapter 16, Paul's second missionary journey. We left off in Philippi. When Paul and Silas, right? Yeah, more Paul and Silas, they got picked up by the authorities. They got beaten with rods, with no trial, brought to jail. And uh, we'll pick up at verse 23. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, the jailer, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So he went above and beyond. He, he's going to make sure they don't get away. And so let's go. Let's see. We had we had our little sections here. We had seen the gospel's power when proclaimed. We saw the gospel's power over the demons, over this little girl who had a demon. And now we'll see the gospel's power in persecution. So we've already seen the conversion of Lydia, a woman of, uh, Scripture calls them these leading women. She was a leading woman. She was a successful woman with a large household. Then we saw this little girl, uh, everybody I've listened to assumed that this girl was saved after they, although it doesn't specifically say that. But I guess a lot of scholars make that assumption that she was one of the first members of the church at Philippi. And now we'll see the conversion of this jailer with this soldier. So verse 25 says, But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. So there's the event. We have Paul and Silas sitting in prison, the inner prison, feet in stocks, beat bruised and bloodied i'm sure very uncomfortable and they're singing hymns of praise to god and praying so that all the jail can hear so now why why we think they were doing that they had no reason to believe that they could be they were going to be rescued here because stephen has done been stoned to death uh james the son of Zebedee has had his head chopped off. And so um, I'm sure they're praying, you know, they're praying for release, praying for relief from this prison, but <clears throat> they have no reason to, you know, think that's absolutely going to happen. But yet still they're, they're rejoicing and praying and singing hymns of praise to God. So, why would they be doing that? That's right. They knew that they were prisoners. 
They knew they were prisoners of Christ and not of Rome, even though they sit in a Roman jail. And then notice how who they were singing. They were singing hymns of praise to God. And uh, I just wanted to make a little point about worship. You know, when we worship, we are singing to God. And we have an audience of one. When we come together in that room and we start worshiping in that way, in, in song, you know, we're not... Uh, singing to each other we're singing to god we have an audience of one but our worship does affect others as we're about to see this worship and prayerfulness in the midst of this suffering has an effect on all these prisoners and the jailer and you know if you want to do a little study i didn't dig into this too much but it noticed it says they were singing hymns of praise Luke, in other places, and Paul make, uh, there's distinctions between psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Uh, in Colossians 3.16 and in Ephesians, Paul was talking about when we're with each other, we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, so there's Two or three times those little things are delineated from one another. I'm not sure why, but that'd be a, probably be an interesting study to see why that is. Yes. There are still churches that only sing psalms. A lot of Presbyterian churches will only sing the psalms. Yeah, and, and to add the, what, you, what you were just quoting, singing and making melody to, to the, each other? No. Yeah, to, to the, the Lord. Lord. So that's in Colossians 3.16. Um, Paul also makes that distinction in Ephesians. And, uh, and you notice Luke says, does, he doesn't say here they're singing psalms. He says they're singing hymns of praise. I don't know if that means anything. It may not, but it might be something worth you know digging into on your private time. Yeah. Uh, so, 26, suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were unfastened. Well, that's a strange event. Why the earth shaking? Because everybody's chains to come undone. So that's obviously miraculous. But uh, this appears to be a very localized event. Um, as far as we know, there's no record of any earthquake around the city of Philippi in, in around 49 AD, like in the, in the records, historical record, there's no record of that earthquake other than here. So this appears to be a localized event at this jail, okay? Which also points to, you know, it, it's miraculous. And so verse 27, when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword, was about to kill himself, Supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That is the question. So notice in 28, Paul says, 
we are all here. And it, Paul, Luke doesn't say anything about any of these other prisoners. We don't know how many other prisoners are in the prison, but it does say the other prisoners were hearing the prayer and songs. So we know there were other men in the prison with Paul and Silas. He doesn't say they all got up and ran out except for Paul and Silas. So we can assume safely that nobody moved and got up and left this prison when, all, when this happened. So the, the guard wakes up, and it, you know, it also doesn't say he heard the prayers and the songs, but I'm going to think he probably did because the way it's worded, this happened at midnight, this earthquake. But it doesn't say they began singing and praying at midnight. They had probably been singing and praying all through the night, and then at midnight, the, the earthquake happens, the doors are open, the chains are released. And so Paul calls out, don't kill yourself. We're not, we're not here. We're, we're all still here. I mean, we're, we're, we're not gone. We're still here. And so notice how he, he calls for light. Where's that at? When the jailer awoke, saw the prison doors open. But Paul cried out, do not harm yourself. And he called for lights and rushed in. So the light came on for this jailer. We're going to see the light come on for this guy. When this, that's what's happening here. So he comes in and falls down before Paul and Silas. That, the wording there is he prostrates himself before Paul and, and Silas. And he asked the question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. That's a pretty simple answer. As they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house, we don't know how long that took, but we can assume it took, you know, they, they explained the gospel to these people. This is all happening during the night. So this is between the hours of midnight is when the earthquake happens, and then in verse 35, when the day came, the chief magistrate sent their policemen. So this is between midnight and 6 a.m., let's say. All this is happening. So it's about a six-hour span of time here. Uh, they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house, and he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household, and he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. So there we see the conversion of the jailer. And we're going to talk a bit about conversion here. The first, let me read this from R. Kent Hughes. He's got a pretty neat quote about a bishop. Uh, he was a chaplain in the British Army. So here we go. This is his, his question. This is the jailer's question. It was sincere and earnest, and he received an answer that has resounded through the ages. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Paul did not suggest a system, no organization, no religion, no denomination. He simply urged faith in Jesus Christ. 
So Bishop John Taylor Smith, he was an honorary chaplain to Queen Victoria and the cap and the chaplain general of the British Army during World War One. He was, quote, everybody's bishop. He was jovial, saintly, and a favorite at conferences. Bishop Smith used to ask all the candidates for the chaplaincy one question. Quote, now, I want you to show me how you would deal with a man. We will suppose I am a soldier who has been wounded on the field of battle. I have three minutes to live, and I am afraid to die because I do not know Christ. Tell me. How may I be saved and die with the assurance that all is well? If the applicant began to beat around the bush and talk about the true church and ordinances and so on, the good bishop would say, that will not do. I only have three minutes to live. Tell me what I must do. And as long as Bishop Smith was the chaplain general, unless a candidate could answer that question, he could not become a chaplain in the British Army. Bishop Smith was right. A gospel that cannot save a dying man is no gospel. A gospel that initially requires more than faith alone is no gospel. The Philippian jailer was saved that night by faith. If his, if his life extended over many months and years, he discovered that the Christian life demands all. But he always knew that his salvation came through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. What a glorious thing it is to offer salvation to all by trust in Christ plus nothing. And he says, not only was the jailer saved, but so was his family. Where it says, and he took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and was baptized at once, he and his family. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Possibly this, the man and his family were baptized at the same well where the jailer, a new man in Christ, had just washed the missionary prisoner's wounds. As they all sat down to breakfast, they sat down as brothers and sisters in Christ. God's power had affected the con conversion and forgiveness of guilty sinners. So that's kind of what happened here. So let's talk about conversion. I've got wrote like the prerequisites. I, I don't like that word, but I couldn't come up with a better one. Like things that must be present for conversion. So what happens here? Number one, the jailer came to the point of desperation. He was about to fall on a sword. He realized he had no hope. Now, his desperation was for his physical life because he knew that they were going to torture him and kill him for letting these for losing the prisoners. But he was at the end of his rope. He was at he had reached he had come to the end of himself. Now when I came to Christ, I wasn't at the end of my I wasn't scared for my physical my physical death, but I was at the end of myself. I had come to the point of desperation and I had no hope. And I, I feel like that's a, we all come to that point. We all must mourn over our sin and realize we need a savior before we'll turn to Christ. If we still have hope in ourselves, then I don't believe we can be converted. So first, we must come to that point of desperation. Number two, he asked the right question. Right? What must I do to be saved? Simple to the point. You could also say, what must I do to be rescued? That word saved is sozo, 
which the normal meaning of that word is to be rescued. What must I do to be rescued? We must ask that question. We must come to the end of ourselves and realize we're without hope and ask the question, where does my hope come from? What must I do to be saved? He received the correct answer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's it. He didn't tell him, go be washed seven times in the River Jordan. Don't go to the temple. Don't go offer a burnt offering. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved. That is the answer we must give people when they ask. It's not who's initiates this. That's not the answer. The answer is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? It's not who's responsible for my belief. Is it me or God? That's that's nope, wrong. That's not what we want to talk to a new believer about. And then he responded correctly. With faith and obedience, he believed, he was baptized, and he immediately began to serve. He bore good fruit. Just like Lydia, he immediately came into the ministry of hospitality. He washed the wounds of Paul and Silas himself. And then he brought him into his house, set him at his own table. These are prisoners, right? These are his prisoners. And he brought them into his own house and put his own food in front of them because they were now his brothers in Christ. So that's definitely good fruit right off the bat. That comes that that goes to you know assurance, and you know there's such a thing as a false conversion. You know Kevin talks about all the time how we got to inspect we're fruit inspectors. I've studied I've done some study on assurance, and if you're not bearing good fruit, uh, I don't think you can have any kind of assurance. Or you may have a false assurance. But that's a, that's a, another lesson for another time. But this jailer, he responds correctly, and he bears good fruit immediately. And, uh, we, you know, we know his conversion is true because it's recorded in the book of Acts by, by Luke. So, But that's just some things about conversion. I think it's interesting that uh, what... What happened first was they they heard prayers and hymns to God, and obviously it was about God. And if we don't know who God is, we we don't see our need for something that we don't have. Well, that's right. Hymns That's right. About God to know so that they would know who God is and know they knew who to ask. Yeah. yeah. That's a good point. I was I didn't make that point. I was going to. You know, the jailer may have known Lydia. You know, we don't know. They lived in the same town, so it's possible they knew Lydia, knew of her conversion. They may have heard this girl following Paul and Silas around for, for days shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God, and they proclaim to you the way of salvation. He could possibly heard that. 
And he most likely heard Paul and Silas praying and singing hymns to God in the prison. I'm sure if you saw someone who had just been severely beaten and was in chains singing and praising That's right. That goes right to our the, our life we live and our testimony as we walk in front of an unbelieving world. You know, it's it's not the gospel, but it is important. He saw Paul and Silas rejoicing in their suffering because of God and because of their faith in Christ. That had to have an effect on this guy. You know, um. Our testimony is powerful. Your your testimony of conversion to an unbeliever can be extremely powerful. I can say it's not the gospel, but it is helpful if you cannot argue with a changed life. If you knew somebody before conversion and then then they see you after conversion, if they don't see a changed life, there might be a problem, and you're going to be much less likely to convince them that you're sincere in your belief. We got to walk the talk, right? Can't just talk it. We got to walk it. And so there's a lot of stuff in there, right? That's, there's a lot there. But that's the main points I had. And thank you for I was going to make that point too. I call that pre evangelized. They were pre evangelized. So they were made ready to hear the gospel by the things that were happening in town up to this point. They knew who Paul and Silas were, let's put it that way. And they knew what they were about. And he knew who to go ask, how must I be saved? So he came He, he came to his point of desperation. He asked the right question. He received the right answer. He responded correctly. And he bore good fruit. So we can all say that's an amen to that. Yeah. I think it's important to note, though, you don't need to know everything that there is to know about God at the moment of your conversion. I mean, I certainly, I certainly have learned much about God after my conversion. So there there's certain things, yes, that we need to go know, but I think the main thing that we need to understand is I'm a sinner and God is a mighty savior. That's right. And those are I think that those are the, the necessaries that we need to grab a hold of. That goes right back to this bishop, this chaplain. Yeah. What do you tell a man he's got three minutes to live? That's exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. You don't have time to explain the doctrine of you know, yeah. the doctrines of grace or none of that. You just, yeah. The Lord Jesus, he's the one. He's your hope. Yeah. Now, discipleship later, absolutely. But it, yeah. That's actually really good. Uh, Todd Frill on Wretched Radio, he goes on a, he goes on a college campus, and he, he, he does an experiment with young kids who are claiming to be Christians, and they actually give rock-solid answers. But he comes up and he, he he's challenging these these young students. Look, I, I've got a knife in my chest. I've got like maybe two minutes. What must I do to be saved? And that's real. We we need to be able to give the gospel at the drop of a handkerchief. Yeah. What what must I do to be saved? I'm fading. Help me. You know. So I think that that's excellent. Maybe maybe y'all could go check it out after we get yeah. out here. It's pretty really good. <laughs> Well, I mean, you can't do more than what Paul said. But he asked the question, Paul gives the answer. Then yeah. the man's baptized. Yeah. You know, different situations are different. We're fixing to see that in chapter 17. Paul's going to preach the gospel at some different places, and he does it a different way. Mm-hmm. He's going to be a Jew to Jews. He's going to be 
one under the law to those under the law. He's going to be one not under the law to those not under the law. But the essence of it is, what must I do to be saved? The answer is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. All the rest of that can come later. That's discipleship and study and growing in faith and growing in grace, growing in growing spiritually. All that should come and must come if you're truly converted. But the essence of it is the Lord Jesus Christ is your only hope. And that's what we see here. And so uh, next we'll see the gospel's power for the church. Now this little section here, we'll just go over it real quick. We'll read it and then talk about it just a little bit. Now the day, now when the day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, release those men. And the jailer, you know, we don't even know this man's name. The jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. Paul ain't having none of that. But Paul said to them, man, they have beaten us in public without trial. Men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And now they are sending us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. So the policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and appealed to them, and when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they, when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. One thing I want to, I want y'all to notice how the brethren is becoming the, the most used word when referring to Christians as we move through this book. Brethren is being used more and more. That's that indication of the how the family, God's family. We're all brothers and sisters, adopted children of our Lord, of our Father. But Paul, he wasn't having none of that, right? And there's a reason for that. There's a couple of reasons for that. Here's what it says. Uh, since Paul could be tough, but he refused to be dealt with severely because he did not want the idea that he incited for lawbreakers to stand. So a public escort from jail by the ruling magistrates would publish their innocence, one, and two, this would bring protection to Lydia and her new house church. So that's why Paul wanted them to come themselves and bring him out. Mainly to let everybody know that they were beaten unfairly. They were not guilty of anything. It was a sham. The whole deal was a sham. And they wanted to deflect any ire or persecution from Lydia. Because there's you know, a new church here. So... And he says this, so after some hemming and hawing, here come the magistrates with their hats in their hand. Mr. Paul, Mr. Silas, sir, we have made a grave error. We would appreciate it if you would not think badly of us. We meant no harm after they done beat them with rods. But that's kind of what happened here. They tried to, uh, let's get them out of town before anybody finds out. Cause remember, this town has, it enjoys special status in the Roman, it's a Roman colony, you know. But it's not on the continent of Rome, so they they have they have special tax exemptions and things like that. And if this this gets around that they beat Roman citizens without a trial, that could that could cause real problems for them. So that's why they were kind of freaked out. 
And so Paul was like, no, you, we're not just going to leave town with our tails between our legs. You're going to come. You're going to come escort us out of here, right? So I gave some protection to Lydia, <clears throat> and uh, so we got a new church here. This is the church at Philippi. We got Lydia. I think in this next chapter he starts by talking about that. Yeah, that's what I'm. He he had something. It, it was it was interesting. I mean, this whole next section, he just talks about Paul. But he did have something about the new church. So basically, he left this new church with Lydia, the jailer, his household, Lydia's household, and probably this Pythonese girl that had the Python spirit. Pretty good-sized little church now, depending on how big their households were. But, you know, we think of a household as me, my wife, and my kids, but they had servants and all kinds of stuff in their households. You know, servants and slaves and children and uncle and nieces and nephews. I mean, you know how many people was in this jailer's household. It seems as if the whole jail was his house, right? Like his, his house was at the jail. Like this is probably a compound. And he lived at the jail, you know. And we know Lydia was a successful businesswoman because she sold purple goods. So she probably had a pretty big retinue with her servants and whatnot. So employees. Probably a pretty good-sized church here. At least a, a good start, right? It's a good start. So, we'll leave chapter 16 with a final word. First, some meeting. Imagine the joy at Lydia's as Paul and his associates in the gospel recounted the, event, the events of the previous night. Okay, this is when Paul gets back to Lydia's house, okay? And he's recounting to Lydia and her household what happened in the jail. There were undoubtedly tears and maybe even some laughter. Maybe they sang a few prison songs and acted out the, the, the seismos, the earthquake. Whatever the agenda, it cultivated in praise. Some church. Here's what I was looking for. Lydia, the merchant princess, the ex-Pythonese girl, and the Philippian jailer, and probably a few ex-inmates made up the first European church. Remember, this is the first church in Europe. This is the beachhead in Europe we talked about last week. The rich and the poor, the slave and the free, male and female, were all one in Christ. The flag of the gospel was unfurled on a continent that needed it desperately. Some life. Through thick and thin, despite the whirlwinds of Satan's opposition, the wind of the Spirit was always at the backs of Paul and his companions. Wherever they were, skimming the Aegean, preaching by the river, delivering souls from demons, taking their licks, singing in the night while the world shook away, or praying with a trembling man for his soul, they were serving an awesome God. And then finally, this is some gospel. And this is from Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And that's all of 16. We got some time. Any questions or comments before we move on to 17? We're going to call it Grinding It Out. Chapter 17 is just Paul grinding it out.
We good to move? All right, let's move. 17. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. All right, let's talk about this. So, let's see, southeast, southwest from Philippi along the Ignatian Way. This is a road still there, right? You can still go there and see this road. You can still see the pavement from the Roman, when the Romans paved this road. So Amphipolis was about 30 miles from Philippi, and in Apollonia about another 30 miles. So that's 60 miles. That's about a two-day walk. The narrative indicates, this is a, John MacArthur note. The narrative indicates that the traveler stopped only for the night in those cities and didn't preach there. At least not more than one night. And then another 40 miles beyond Apollonia was Thessalonica. And then Thessalonica is the capital city of Macedonia. It's huge. It's a population of 200,000 people. In this time, this day and time, that's a large metropolis, okay? 200,000 people. It was a major port city and an important, an important cultural center. So this is a big, this is the capital of this of this region. This is where, you know, it's, a, it's big. And uh, about a three-day walk from Philippi. He's got another note. It says, Luke refers to a synagogue only in Thessalonica, which may explain why Paul's companions did not stay in the other two cities. Okay, maybe, maybe not. That's John MacArthur's opinion. I don't know if I believe it, whatever. But uh, so let's see. So Paul is covering some, some territory here. We've already seen. He's done went all the way through Asia Minor. He's crossed the Aegean Sea to Europe. Now he's going to make his way around Europe. And there, so... Altogether, Paul covers about 2,700 miles in this in this missionary journey. Altogether, from start to finish. Now, there is no way he could have done that without Roman rule, as it was at that time. Without the roads, the shipping, the ports, all the the amenities that Rome provided. Okay, it, they might could have done it. They could have done it absolutely if God wanted it done, but it would have been a whole lot harder. Okay, so the reason I've heard it said, I believe it, that this was the right time is because we had a common language. You know, Koine Greek was spoken throughout all of this, the known world at this time. So they had a language that was common enough that everybody could understand. And there was also the Pax Romana, which is the peace of Rome. That's what I mean by because of Rome, it was safe for Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke to travel this way. They could get from one place to another without having to worry about bandits getting them. You know, there were Roman um, garrisons in all these towns you know, that kept the peace, kept the roads safe. They kept the roads up. There were aqueducts. There were paved, paved roads. There were nice port cities. And all this that allowed this to happen. So we're going to see Paul and him cover a little ground here. And I call this, he's grinding it out. 
we're going to see Paul preaching the word and we're going to see him do it different ways at different places. Okay, so that's just setting up what we're going to see here. Paul preaching the word in Thessalonica first. So, let's start. Let's read that again. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So we know there were at least, right, ten men, head of households. That's what That was what required to have a synagogue. So we know at least there was that many. Probably a pretty good-sized Jewish community here. It's a big city. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus who I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. All right, let's look at how Paul does this. Notice the pattern. Remember, we talked about this a while back. There's a pattern that almost always happens when Paul enters a city. He goes to the synagogue, if there is one, and he comes to the Jews first, and any God-fearing Greeks that attend synagogue on the Sabbaths. Some Jews will come to faith. Many more Greeks will come to faith. And then the rest of the Jews cause trouble. Almost, it happens almost that way every time. So that's what happens here. He goes, as it says, as was his custom, he goes to the synagogue. And for three Sabbaths, he says he reasoned with them from the scriptures. That's, that's, that word in Greek is the word we use to get our word dialogue. So you could say that Paul went to the he went to them and for three Sabbaths he dialogued with them from the scriptures. So that'd be another way you could render that word. So he's talking to them. You know, he's questioning answers. He he reads them a section. Here's what this means. Well what you know, and they well what is what, what about this? What about this? So that's kind of what we the picture we have here when they say he reasoned from the scriptures. He's reasoning with these people. He's talking to them. He's having a dialogue with them. And then it says he uh, he explained. That word it literally means opening. So he opened the scriptures to them, basically, is what that means. It's the same word Luke uses in his gospel. Um when Jesus meets the two disciples on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection. And it says, he opened up the scriptures to them. Same word used here. So that's the, that's the connotation of this. He's opening up the scripture to them. What Psalm 119 says, the unfolding of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. So he's trying to help these people understand what has happened and what this means. And then it says he's giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. Now, that giving evidence, another way to say that is he's proving. He's giving proofs from Scripture of why things happened with Jesus the way they did. And I, I could just say he's probably talking to him and saying, well, have you considered the testimony of Hosea? And he would go to the scroll of Hosea. Here's what Hosea said. You know, have you considered Psalm 22? 
What about Isaiah 53? And of course, he wouldn't be giving them chapters, but you know, have you considered the, the testimony of Isaiah concerning the Messiah? That's what this is talking about, right? He's giving them proofs. Um, for the resurrection, he would might bring them to Psalm 16:10, where he talks about how you will not let your holy one see corruption, right? That's what that's what's happening here. Paul's just walking in here saying, I'm Paul, and I'm an apostle, and here's what I say. He's he's proven this. He's given them. He's saying, look, the, the, the prophets of old have spoken of these things. Remember how Peter always, he would always come in and say, the prophets have spoken of this. This is in line with Scripture. This is all in line with Scripture. We just missed it. We just didn't read it right. This, is, this had to happen. Christ, had, the Messiah, had to suffer and die. It was all foretold. Because remember, the Jews, they weren't looking for a suffering servant. They were looking for a conquering king. They were looking for the son of David, and they got the son of Joseph instead. And that's not what they were hoping for. So Paul's just explaining to them, look, this is the Messiah son of Joseph, not the Messiah son of David. This is a Joseph figure. He came, he suffered, he was sold for silver, he was... Killed, put in a grave, put in a hole. He came to save us. And so, <clears throat> anyway. Enough about that. So he, he explained, gave evidence. He said, this Jesus who I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. This is the one. This is the one who was foretold. And then we see what happens. See the response. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. So there's three different peoples he, that Luke identifies here. You got the Jews. Some of them were persuaded. That's Jews. along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks. That's Greeks who attend synagogue on, on Sabbaths. They have rejected the pantheon, pantheons of Rome and Greece, and they have come to believe that there's only one God, and he doesn't live in some temple on the Parthenon. And a number of the leading women. So these are women like Lydia, right? There, there were a lot of these women. They were kind of upper crust of society. They knew how to read. They were versed in philosophy and mathematics and all these things. You know, they were upper crust. That's what, you know, they were, what did Dr. Dyke said? The, the upper crust consists of a bunch of flakes held together by dough. So they all had money, right? They were influential people. <laughs> Dr. Dykes is funny. But uh, so we see a pattern here. You know, we say we see the pattern. He goes to the synagogue. He reasons from the scriptures. Some Jews believe. A lot of these Greeks, who are let's say pre-evangelized, because they're at synagogue, believe. And, and then he, he specifically says leading women. And we're going to see that again at Berea too. But these are, you know, these are like Lydia. And so next we'll see the charges. The charges always come. 
the conversion happens, then here come the, the jealous Jews to bring the trouble. And so in verse 5, but the Jews becoming jealous, well, we've seen that before, right? That was at uh, Iconium. Wasn't Iconium where they got so jealous because so many people showed up to, to hear Paul speak? It was in Iconium or Lystra. But we've seen this before, the Jews became jealous. And taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, that seems to indicate, you know, these are men who just hang out at the market. They don't really have jobs. You know, they're cut purses and, you know, pickpockets, you know, bums. That's what R. Kent Hugh calls it. He says it's a bunch of bums. Likely they hired them, gave them money for this, you know. So they took along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. We don't really know much about Jason. This is the only time he's mentioned. Um, he's likely Jewish because of the, the name Jason. I suppose that a lot of the just a lot of the Jews in the um, what do you call it? The Jews are scattered. What is it? In the diaspora. A lot of the Jews in the diaspora took the name Jason. That's what commenter said. So that's why the scholars believe this man was a Jew. And apparently they were staying at his house because this is where the mob went to get them. So they would have had a reason to think that. Okay. But when they did not find them, so they, they weren't there, they began dragging Jason and some brethren, there's that word again, brethren, before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, namely Jesus. So we got two charges here. Two, two separate charges. And it's 1027, so we'll stop. Make a note there. Well, we'll just pick back up here at, uh, at the charges at 5-9 or 17-5 right there. All right. Thank you all for listening to me ramble. I think I rambled a bit today, but... Thank y'all for coming.